We continue now in Mark's gospel, and we come this morning to chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. For some of you who may be new here, it is our habit to preach through books of the Bible, and that way we are exposed to what God is saying in an entire book, and we um, learn something of how to study the Scriptures, and we submit to the authority of all that is taught here. We see the connectedness of Scripture, and the minister must preach what comes next, not just what he might like to choose. And so we preach through books of the Bible. It's called Lectio Continua. It was the habit of the Protestant Reformers to preach through books of the Bible. Mark 1, beginning at verse 21, but let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we are but children, lisping before Thee, doing our very best to express the heart and our needs. But one thing we do know, we need Jesus. We need the Word of God. We need that Word explained to us. We need to read it. We need to hear it preached. We need to submit to its authority. And we are thankful that in this text we see Christ Jesus, who is the Redeemer and Savior of sinners. And as we see Mark's gospel unfold, may we follow it with rapt attention. And we ask also, Heavenly Father, that those who may be here today who do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior will see that it's quite a simple thing, but it really is only the Holy Spirit who can make it happen. Seeing ourselves to be sinners, seeing Christ to be the only Redeemer, we simply receive Him in faith. And we pray that this day there will be those who receive Christ in faith as we who do believe continue to receive him. He is the object of our faith, the blessed Lord Jesus, into whose presence we come in prayer through the power of the Holy Spirit, asking, O Father, that we be heard for thy blessing upon the reading and proclamation of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Through verse 39. This is the word of God. And they went into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. 
And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, one day, one day and a little more, we see the Lord Jesus teaching and healing, casting out demons with authority. One theme of our text is the amazement that those who were there felt within their souls as he ministered to others. Most of the text takes place from sunrise to sunset, and if you come to the text using your imagination, you can walk with Jesus through that one day and discover why you too should be amazed that he is your Savior. The amazement is the product of Christ's authority. The amazement is the product of understanding and recognizing who he is. And so we come to the text, and the first thing we see is authoritative teaching. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching there in the synagogue. He is aware of his personal authority. And in verse 22, we read, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. A feature of Mark is to stress this. It is translated in William's translation, they were dumbfounded. While William Hendrickson suggests struck out of themselves or out of their senses with wonder, the power of the Holy Spirit without measure was given to Jesus, and in his preaching and teaching it came with incredible God-sent power. And the kind of authority that Jesus claimed for himself would be absolutely pathological in any man who was not God incarnate. There are examples of this throughout Mark, but let me take you to one in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel, just a few pages over. In verses 61 and 62, when the Lord Jesus is before the council, and this is just before he is delivered over to Pilate, we read in verses 61 and 62 of Mark 14, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Imagine a mere man saying this, and to think of him as an honest man, or to think of him as a sane man. The point is simply this. 
It is inconsistent to claim to follow Jesus, believe his teaching, and not to accept him as God incarnate. Often it has been observed that he would not be a good man, at least not a sane man, if he were not God. We must accept Jesus on his own terms and according to the authority of the Bible. The lack of interest that so many professing Christians have about the person of Christ, who he is, is profoundly disturbing. I saw in a recent poll that there is, according to that poll, a majority of professed Christians in our country that do not believe in the sinlessness of Christ. Now, I take polls with a certain grain of salt, but it shows something. If he is not sinless, he cannot be your Savior. To believe in a sinful Jesus means that many people who say that they are believing in Christ are not believing in the Christ of the Bible. Where is the pulpit? Where is the classroom? What is being taught in the church, the professing church in our land today? And I say it clearly, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate, and his authority manifests this fact. Jesus' authority is based upon his person, his authoritative teaching about which those who heard him wondered is based upon his person. Mark is presenting to us the uniqueness of Christ. Are you beginning to recognize something about him, something extraordinary about this Jesus? Might that be for you a first step of faith that is wrought in your heart by the Holy Spirit as you believe in Christ who is the unique Son of God? authoritative teaching. But then as we move on, the next thing we see, the second thing, is authority over demons. We read in verse 23 of this passage, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. So this is during the synagogue, as Jesus perhaps was opening the Torah to teach, or as perhaps prayers were being offered under the influence of an unclean spirit, this man walks in. Demon possession was not mental illness, though it undoubtedly caused all kinds of illnesses. Jesus' victory over demons and over the powers of darkness is a central message of Mark's gospel. Jesus defeated the devil in the temptation in the wilderness, as we have already seen, and now he casts out demons. Demonic activity increased with the coming of the Messiah. One writer has said, does the anointed one seek entrance into the hearts of men? Satan sends out his servants, the demons, to take control of these hearts. Someone also has said, his name is Cranfield, a New Testament scholar of some note, a confident certainty of the demons' non-existence may be their greatest triumph in our day. While it is true that some Christians are unbalanced in their approach toward the demonic, some of us have not given enough attention to it. Not to believe in the demonic realm is to fail to see a huge component of reality. Surely behind the moral insanity of our nation, behind the West's moral degradation and that of the world, is not only our fallen humanity, our sinful hearts, original sin, but also the realm of darkness that is unseen to us. 
The matter of demon possession today is another question that I will not get into, and at least we must say there was again this acceleration of demonic activity as the Son of God became incarnate. Still, in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, we learn there, it makes it clear that we Christians are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the demonic world. And so the demon shrieks. It could be translated. And what does he shriek in verse 24? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So one demon appears to speak for all. What will happen to one will happen to all of them when Jesus casts them into the hell of fire on the last day. And the poor man's personality is totally bound, and even his vocal cords are used by this demon. Why does the demon fear? It's because he recognizes whom Jesus is. Demons have discernment. Jesus of Nazareth, he stands in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and he sees that he is the Holy One of God, which prepares us for chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, in which the demons say he is the Son of God. Have you come, meaning from heaven, to destroy us, meaning already? And he knows his demonic goose is cooked. He's shaking in his demonic boots. The demon is under no misconception about who Jesus is. He is under no misconception about why he has come, and he knows that the arrival of the kingdom, which we described last time, means the beginning of the end for the world of darkness. Do you realize, no matter what we see in this world, that already in the coming of God incarnate in this world, because the kingdom came in him, was the beginning of the end of the world of darkness. You are triumphant in this Christ. And therefore, the truth that makes the demonic world shake with terror is who Jesus is. When Mark tells us this, he means for us to take note and to hear, adopt the demon's insight in this case. Yes, he is the Holy One of God. And oh, how we should see who he is and fall upon our knees before him, not shaking as did this demon, but trembling with joy and reverence before the one who is the King of Kings. So imagine the Holy One of God, the transcendent one, the second person of the Trinity made flesh, speaks to an unclean spirit. One authoritative rebuke from Jesus settles the matter. There's no technique that he uses here. There is no incantation that he uses here. There is no amulet that he uses. There is no struggle at all. We read in verse 25, he says, Fimotheti, which could be translated literally, be muzzled. Shut up. Then followed by, come out of him. And in verse 26, the word is to tear or to rend. He convulsed the man in whom he had been living and whom he had possessed. And the loud cries are indicators of this demon's total desperation. 
with this kind of authority, let me ask you, child of God, with this kind of authority, is there anything that comes up in our lives that should dominate us with fear? What I fear tells me a great deal about my heart. John Knox again, fear God, fear sin, fear nothing else. We have Jesus Christ, the one who cast out demons, the one who rules over all things as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And oh, that I might live more in the reality of God's sovereign control, more in the reality of who Jesus is. Imagine the shrieks of the demons when they, on the last day, are cast into the pit forever by him whose eyes are like a flame of fire and upon whose head are many diadems, who is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and whose name is the word of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. The exorcism shows that the kingdom of God is a present reality. His saving rule has arrived in Jesus Christ. Or as Herman Ritterboss put it, for the exercise of God's power over the devil and his rule has the coming of the kingdom for its foundation. And he goes on to say, the coming of the kingdom is the initial stage of the great drama of the history of the end. Did you hear that? The coming of the kingdom is the initial stage of the great drama of the history of the end. So here is a sign. Here is a pointer to the end. A sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, which means life can never be the same. Life must change. A new Lord rules. A new Lord reigns. The saving reign of the Lord has begun, and the demons tremble before him. And then in verses 27 and 28, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Are you amazed at his authority? First John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It is possible that the second sentence in verse 24, have you come to destroy us, is not a question at all. There would have been no question mark or any mark of punctuation in the original. Perhaps he is simply saying, you have come to destroy us. At any rate, the prominent position of the story in Mark is to tell us that Christ has come to destroy the power of the devil to set us free from Satan's thraldom, and we must live as believers in that reality. No matter how what we see around us might seem to contradict that truth. But let me ask you this question. Whom do you recognize as your spiritual Lord? Whom do you recognize as your spiritual master? King Jesus or that defeated tyrant Satan. Now, in terms of raw principle, there are no other alternatives. It's one or the other. It is Jesus or it is Satan. But few of us would answer Satan. But it shows in our choices, doesn't it? Who is our Lord and who is our master? Maybe the inbreaking of the kingdom will come in your life by the Spirit showing you your heart and making you aware of your real need. Maybe you have set up a kingdom of your own, a micro-kingdom. Maybe it's your heart's lusts. Maybe it is your business. Maybe it is your plans instead of God's kingdom, whatever it may be. Do you see that you need Jesus to deliver you from these tyrannies? But now, 
Even more amazement as we see thirdly, Jesus' authority over illness, a private account. What a day it has been thus far, and now we have a beautiful, quiet, undramatic healing. You read it in the first person plural, and you can hear how Peter must have preached this. Do you remember in the first sermon how we pointed out that it's almost certain that, that this was Peter's preaching, the Gospel of Mark, recorded by Mark? And so as Peter preached it, it would have sound, sounded something like this. As soon as we left the synagogue, we went with James and John to our home. My mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and we told Jesus about her. And so we went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on us. And so underneath is the sound historical footing of the preaching of Peter. So it is the Sabbath, and Peter's mother-in-law has a high fever. And no words are recorded here in this text for her healing, just physical touch. Mark often emphasizes the physical touch of Jesus when he cures, and the cure was instant. Verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. And so the suffering servant of the Lord healed her, and she began to serve now, a lot can be said there, but I'm not going to. I'm simply going to say, what does this say about Jesus' healing? It says that she had renewed strength, that not only was the fever removed, but she was not dissipated by it. She was able to get up, and with alacrity, she was able to serve. Jesus' first healings are found here in Mark. They are signs, they are pictures of the inner reality and vitality of the blessedness of the kingdom that has arrived in his person. Demons cast out, healing the sick. Well, if Jesus is the Son of God and his saving rule, his kingdom, has broken through in him, isn't this what you would expect? Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened. Isn't that what you would expect? The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. But then we see another, fourthly, authority over illness again, but a public account. In verses 32 to 34, we have probably the news of the exorcism and perhaps of Peter's mother-in-law has spread far and wide and evening of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is over and the people begin to come. I remember reading in O. Palmer Robertson something that he said about the healing ministry of Jesus once. He said, imagine for a moment that someone has come into your town who can heal all of the diseases. And what happens is the hospitals empty, all the sanitariums empty, the hospices empty, and they all come because they are being healed by that person. Well, that's what happens with Jesus Christ as he comes, and he indicates the kingdom has come through his healing ministry. Can you see the sick surrounding Jesus? Those who are so hopeful of healing, who have been suffering for so long. There's a man on a pallet. He's been on that pallet 25 years. This is his life. And there's another man who is, um, maybe he's leaning on a cane, and he can hardly take another step. 
And there is another obviously blind person stumbling about and unable to see anyone and looking into the air, desiring to be healed of his blindness. And there's a woman bringing her little baby because her little baby is sick and and perhaps near death and no one is able to help her little baby. And the text tells us that even more of the demon-possessed also, he cast out more demons all pressing in on him so that as R.H. Lightfoot wrote somewhere, the, the, the street became a hospital. And the range of healings and miracles in Mark is remarkable. You have fever and leprosy and paralysis and a withered hand and a flow of blood and a deaf and a dumb man and two blind men and the raising of a dead girl to life. And R.T. France said, Jesus was no specialist. <laughs> Isn't that true? He didn't say, well, you come to me for eyes. I have to send you somewhere else for ears. No, 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 not at all. What should we draw from this? The miracles, the signs performed by Jesus, again, they are here not simply to show his compassion, though that's there. He did not heal everyone that was ill that was in Israel. It's here to show his uniqueness. It is here to show that he is the Son of God. It is here to show that the kingdom has come and their purpose is fulfilled. But what the Gospel of Mark wants you to see is that the one denominated in the very first verse of Mark, the Son of God, this is him. He is the Son of God. And he is confirmed as the Son of God by these signs. Then we have one more note of authority in this text that should lead to amazement, and that is authoritative preaching. Our Lord Jesus is not simply interested in drawing a crowd, but in seeing people repent. Many valued healing, but how many valued pardon? And do not miss the place of prayer when we read in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In his human nature, he fellowshiped in prayer with his heavenly Father. This is his source of strength, and it should be ours. And indeed, if the sinless Son of God become man, felt it necessary to go to a desolate place and pray, then surely you and I, fallen sinners saved by grace, by this Redeemer, need to find a place regularly to get off and to pray. Mark stresses this interplay between the crowds and Jesus' private time with the Lord over and over again in his gospel. Jesus then leaves a prosperous healing ministry, and we are told why in verses 38 and 39. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I remember as Thomas Goodwin put it, God had one son and he made him a preacher. For this purpose I came, says Jesus. The word preached and the word that cast out demons is the same. And now now he goes out into Galilee and he focuses on the preached word. Now... After the Lord has ascended into heaven and his kingdom power to transform lives has been unleashed in this world, 
the church has as her first calling the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And when his gospel is preached, it is the Holy Spirit who takes the word to hearts and raises Satan's kingdom to the ground. And the same word that cast out demons resounds in hearts and lives like yours and mine, even now, because Jesus came, the kingdom came, because of his authority, I stand amazed in his presence. What a day it was. This, all of this essentially in one day and a little more. What a day it was and what a calling it extends to the church. Did you notice that I left something out important? And it's back there in verse 34 when he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why? Well, on one level, he doesn't want people just to see him as a miracle worker, a solution to problems. He must preach the message of the kingdom. That's his first priority. But there's something more here. It relates to the nature and purpose of Jesus' ministry of the Incarnation. At least seven times in Mark, Jesus commands silence after performing a miracle. So there is indirectness, a kind of veiledness that was essential to a gradual revelation of who he was. Gradually, he will reveal himself in Mark's gospel as the one who came to suffer on the cross. It will all be made known at the right time when he comes in his final days of ministry, and especially after his bodily resurrection from the tomb. But now, people of God, the veil is lifted. There's no more indirectness, veiledness. We proclaim today that the kingdom has come, and it is confirmed by the greatness of Jesus' miracles, and especially the miracle of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We are called to end-time evangelism. Jesus' resurrection contains a promise, all things will be made new, and the preaching itself, the preaching that is happening even at this moment, through this feeble preacher, there is the authoritative word of God being proclaimed And the preaching itself is a kingdom sign that will remain until Jesus comes again. Are we about this proclamation, about this witness bearing, about this approach to Christian living? Are you gripped by? That's why I took time last week to say here is what the kingdom means when you read about it in the Gospels and in the New Testament. Are you gripped by the inbreaking of the future into the present through the person and work of Christ, the saving rule of God? Are we gripped by this? Well, I think we will be more and more when one thing is true of us. When one thing is true of you and me, then we will be more and more about this kingdom reality and living in light of it and witnessing for his name. And what is that one thing? That one thing is amazement. Isn't it throughout the text? 
that one thing is amazement. Those who saw Jesus exercise signs of the kingdom were amazed at his authority. When our hearts are gripped that the Jesus who taught with authority in the synagogue cast out a demon, healed a woman with a fever, healed the multitudes, is the Son of God who substituted himself on a cross and bore my hell in my place and rose from the dead, that he is the Savior of my soul? Who can take that for granted? Then when our hearts are amazed, we will preach his word who are called to it. We will bear witness for him as we are all called to do in our words and in our lives. And we will sing his praises and we will eagerly await his coming. O people of God, are you amazed? Let us be amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. The demon was amazed. But let us be amazed because he is the Savior of my soul. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous How wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amen.